Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall be your heir, shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, and then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, on Abram. Ooh. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and, I, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. And I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the, Kadam the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Jergeshites, and the Jebusites. I'm so glad that you just said Abraham and not Abram because I've done that about 30 times in the last three weeks. And every time I'm like, we're getting really close to Abram becoming Abraham. And another comfort that I had that I found this week, uh, I was listening to uh, when I was running a, a, a podcast from David Platt, and he was reading a big section of the, of the in Exodus. And he, instead of saying one of the long names, he said, I can't pronounce that. And he just moved on. It's like, Oh, I feel so much better after the butchering job that I did last week that I should have just skipped it, apparently. Um, but it was, it was comforting. Uh, so as I began to look at this text this morning, I had this ever-so-brief thought of, 
what could I ever say about this that I haven't really talked about over the last couple weeks? Because as we've been looking at Abraham, as we've been looking at Abram, man, after all that, I still said it. Uh, as, we, as we look at God revealing himself to Abram, it's this covenant language that we've kind of been building towards all ever since Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when God first enters into um, Abram's life and we see those words. Because it, the text this week is really kind of a summary of the last three weeks. Not necessarily a summary of the narrative portions, but a summary of the, the theme. Because all along, God has been telling Abram, this is what I'm going to do through you. This is what I'm going to do. I will do this. I will do this. The whole time has been God saying what he is going to do. Going to make Abram into a great nation, a, a great name. He's going to bless him. We see that he continues to remind Abram of these things. That even, even through Abram's failure, even through difficulty, that it's still ultimately what God is going to do. And we've seen the overarching theme of every single week, the last, I say every single one, the last four specifically, has been what God was going to do through Abram, not just what Abram was going to do. And what we see is this week, God is going to do this a little bit more um, formally. He's going to um, ultimately make a covenant with Abram. So if you have your Bibles... Um, I want you to first look at Genesis chapter 12, where we started, um, I guess, four weeks ago now. Genesis chapter 12. and Remember those first three verses. I'm going to read them again for us. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the, of the earth shall be blessed. These are the first words we see God speaking to Abram. But it, it's, again, it's this declaration that, of God saying, this is what I'm going to do. Not, not what Abram's going to do, but this is what I'm going to do. Is I will. I will do this. I will do this. And, and we said as we went through there was nowhere in there where God gives Abram any sort of checklist. Or, okay, so here's what you must do. It's all up to God and what he is going to do through Abram. And we've seen that over and over again in, in these texts. But then Genesis 15, 1 through 3. I'm going to read those again for us. It says, After these things, remember everything from last week, Abraham goes and he... And he rescues Lot. We he see that interaction with Melchizedek and then the king of Sodom. So it says, After these things, the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is, is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So what you see is like just in these three verses, we see Abram really questioning those promises that God made in, in chapter 12 and what God had reiterated a couple different times between 12 and 15. But looking at Abram's situation, looking at the, his reality, it seems like a fair question. 
Right? I mean, it's like he hasn't seen any of this. Abram's reality, what he sees, does not yet match the promises that, Abram, that, that God made to Abram in chapter 12. Just looking at the circumstances, there seems to be a difference between God's promises and the reality that Abram sees. What he sees in front of him, what he has experienced thus far. Because Abram, if you look at different texts around, surrounding chapter 15, you see that Abram's 75 to 85 years old at this point. He doesn't have a child. He's like, how am I going to have offspring that are, that are as numerous as we see the, the stars and, and the dust? We've seen God promise in this land, and we see that Abram goes to the land, but then he leaves because of famine and goes to Egypt. He comes back and he goes to rescue Lot and goes to war. All these things that look very different than these promises that God had made. Because Abram's immediate circumstances, his immediate, what he sees before him, what he's experienced between 12 and 15, appear to be different than the promises that God has made him. But here's something I, w- I want to note. I want to be very clear. It's the way that, that, that Abram questions these things. Because he, notice he doesn't question God's ability to do X, Y, and Z. He, he doesn't question God's ability to make him a great nation or to make his name great or to do these things. He doesn't question God's ability, but he questions what he sees. It's like based on, God, I see this. Like, I don't understand. You're saying these things but I'm not seeing that around me. And notice God's response. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't condemn Abram for asking these questions. He doesn't say, no, you should not ask these questions. But he responds tenderly and patiently to Abram. Because Abram is just saying, God, I don't understand. What, how do I know that you're going to do all these things that you promised to me. And kind of like we said last week, you see, Abram's really not seeing, he's like, God, no, I don't see that big picture. I don't see the big picture of what you're doing. I'm seeing this small picture of what is around me. But again, look at the patient. Look how God responds to him. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. For the third time, we've seen, we see God reiterate what he's going to do. The third time, God reminds Abraham and says, no, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do on your behalf. This is what I'm going to give you. And God, Abraham says, I don't even have an offspring. What am I to do? You tell these promises. I, here, all I have is this guy, this Eliezer of Damascus. And from what I read this week, it was not terribly uncommon in that time because inheritance were a big thing, passing on all the land you have and your possessions, that it wasn't uncommon for a couple 
um, without children to go into, was their family friend or someone that they trusted, to go into to bring someone else in and f- legally adopt them, but it was all to pass along what they had, to pass along their, their house and their possessions and their inheritance and all, and all of that. And I don't know that that's what happened here. I mean, it doesn't specifically say, but Abram's saying, like, I don't have this offspring to, to how, how are you going to do this? How are you going to make my offspring so great? And God says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And what you see, like God is just gently, lovingly reminding Abram that the story's not over yet. That just because what he sees, the physical circumstances around him, what he can see with his eyes, it, his story is not over. Abram is, again, looking at what's around him. He's looking at his experiences. The promises in his experience. He's, he sees like these aren't lining up. But God comes and graciously, lovingly reminds Abram of what he is still yet to do. And, but there's, the, there's this tension that I think Abram's kind of walking through of, but God, God has just said, what, in, in verse 1, in verse 1, God says, I, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. That's, and that's what Abram, in this, this tense moment, you almost picture of him saying, but God, how do I know that? You're saying these things. But that's not what I see. And I said this, I think it was three weeks ago, that I think that we are so impacted, us, by what we see, what we experience, our own path, what we see. And one step further is I think that our actions, <coughs> our actions, what we do, are, they are fueled by what we experience. That we act upon what we know. We act upon what we've experienced. And that doesn't always mean that those experiences, what we act upon, are rooted in the promises of God. I mean, as I look at my own life, I see that that many of my, the actions that I take, the things that I do, are only when I can see it. When I can see what I'm stepping towards, I, a, silly, a silly example, just a clear example, I think, is like when Brent and I over the last couple of months have looked a couple different times at buying a car. And like with my car, trying to get, when we had the three girls and the booster seats in the back seat of my car, three of them, just more than a five minute drive, and it was just a bad, bad idea. Um, so we've just been kind of looking, not, not extremely seriously, but kind of looking. And everyone we've looked, we've looked on what we can afford based on the bank account that I see. And hear me out. I'm going to contrast this example to where we're going. But I think it would, speaking of cars, buying something, making a purchase, unless God is very, very clear, I think it would be very unwise to buy a car that wasn't based on the bank account that we see or the budget that we see, what we can afford. But again, my actions, what I've been looking at, is based on what I see. And again, please don't tell, hear me saying anything about going to, to buy a car, buy a house or something based on a bank account that's not there. That's not at all what I'm saying. 
But I think that we take, we take this and it's translated to multiple different things in our lives. That the world says, don't act until you see. Don't only act upon what you see. Like, this thing is like, if you don't see it, don't believe it. Don't act until you see it. But I think as we look at trusting God with everything, with that picture in mind, think of what it looks, this looks like for Abram. With this world that says, don't act until you fully see it. Make sure you fully see it before you act. Imagine yourself as Abram. You don't have an offspring. You can't trust that God's going to do this. You don't see the path from, from A to B. You don't see it. You can't trust it until you see it. You don't have this. This land does not belong to you. Like You don't see that. You don't have that title. You don't have that deed for the land. Don't, you can't trust it because you can't see it. Look, you failed in Egypt. You came back and you went to war. Things are hard. Like, look at what you see. God must be distant. He's, can't, he's not doing what he promised. Like, based only on what he can see, based only on what he can see, Abram had so many reasons to question based on this mindset of don't act until you see it or act upon what you see. It's all based on sight. And I believe, again, this plays over into many things in our, our lives. When we're taught, like, oh, there's those promises of God, but be careful, like, only act upon what you can see. Don't, that, that step of faith, don't be careful. And I think a touchy subject that I'm going to touch on, um, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but how many of you at any point in your life or now have felt maybe you hesitate to, maybe you struggle to, or just don't give sacrificially to the church as far as tithing and giving? Like how many of you have ever thought, ah, I've got, I've only got so much money, I've got all these bills, I've got so many other things to pay for, Again, I think it's the same line of thinking that I, I see how much money I have and how much I'm willing to give, what I'm going to do, the ways I'm going to obey God in giving is all based on how much money we think we have or how much extra we feel like we have left over after we see all of our bills and all of our things that we want to do with the money. But our action and our giving is based on what we see, the bank account that we feel like we have. But I think in doing, in this conversation, I think that our focus, our focus is a little off. Before you think it's just another preacher dude talking about money, hold on. Malachi 3. Malachi 3. I marked it because it's hard to find, but it'll be on the screen. Malachi 3. The only place in Scripture that I know of where God says, test me on this. Test me on this. 
I'm just going to read Malachi 3, 7 through 12. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you have cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will be not so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So, so catch all of that. Like God says, like by, by withholding what God has so graciously given you, by, by withholding this, he says you're robbing God. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts if I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you blessings until there are, is no more need. <laughs> what I see is the people of Israel here were being stingy with, God, with what God had graciously blessed them with. Like, this was not a people being defined by, by being just holding with open hands what God had given them. Like, that's not defining them. But God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. He then says, put me to the test. Like, I'm going to bless you as you do this. Like, we've got to be careful. Like, this is not meaning I'm going to bless you monetarily. This does not mean give to God of the money that he's given you and God's going to give you more money in return. That's not at all what this is saying. But what is God saying? It says that those who faithfully and sacrificially give will be blessed until there is no need. And you may think I'm crazy, but I think God actually means this. That he is promising, promising to have no need. It says, give to the Lord. Give sacrificially of what I've given to you. And you will have no need. I think God means this. I think God means this. And so I think that so often, instead of our giving being defined in this way, instead of letting this be the focus, our giving is defined by what we think we see in our bank account, or what we think we see in our budget, or how much extra we have. Our focus is in the wrong place. It's not on the promise of God, but it's on what we see. So again, it's, our actions are based so often on what we see. On what we see. But again, this is all over our lives, I think. These actions that are based on sight. Like maybe it's not finances. There's many times in our life where I think that our current situations, things we're walking through, can seem very different than what we deem God to have promised. This, when we find ourselves asking that question, God, I know you say you're good, but I don't see that in this situation. God, I know you say you will provide, but I'm struggling to make ends meet here. 
sometimes our current situations can appear different. Because, again, we're locked into more closely seeing our current situation, what we can see, the bank account that may or may not be there, the food we may or may not have, and we can find ourselves in a place that is saying, God, I don't know what's going on here. What I see is different than what you have said. And I think we see this all over. And I really do believe that just as God interacts with Abram here, that I think that as we might ask these same questions, I, think, I don't think God scolds. He doesn't condemn these questions. But I think if we look closely, I think what we see is that God also, in these moments, so reminds us of a promise that he made. Reminds us of who he is. Reminding us of something, something that goes beyond what we might see with our eyes in our circumstances, in our experiences. Far beyond what we might see. I want you to think again about Abram. About what he is seeing. Because Abram, what he is seeing with his eyes are the effects of sin. It's the effects of his own sin, his lying, his deceit. Like Abram is seeing, comes from a pagan family, a pagan land. He sees the brokenness and like, just as the sin of a world. As his wife is barren and unable to have children. He sees the sins of others as he goes to war to save his nephew. Like Abram is surrounded, what he sees is a sin-stained world. And what we've been seeing is that his actions, his questions, were based on sight from these experiences, from what he has seen. But I, I, I've said this a couple times this morning. But it's in that moment, even based on the reality he sees around him, it's even then that God tenderly, lovingly, graciously reminds him of where all this is centered. Listen to these words and just hear the graciousness, the, the merciful God. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. There's tenderness and mercy and grace in the way that God interacts with Abram here. Because God could have stepped in and said, okay, I'm done with you. I've told you this. This is the third time God has told Abram, I'm going to do this. God could have said, I'm, I'm moving on because you don't believe me. But even when he questions, Abram is met with love and grace and God meets him with not even just a promise now. But God takes it one step further. And we're going to see this unfold here. But all of this is just a culmination of God revealing himself as being different than the world. Of God revealing himself to say, I am different than what you see. 
the way the world interacts with each other, the way that we're, so we base things on merit, our accomplishment that we've been seeing since Genesis 11, all of that, God is setting himself apart. Because when the world says you're defined by accomplishment and merit and strength, God is saying, no, 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 I'm going to redefine you based on what I accomplish, based on what I do. When the world says that you're defined by failure, God is saying, no. Even when you're unfaithful, I will remain faithful. Let's let's keep going in the text. There's so, so much that we could talk about as far as God and the way that that he, he works and moves through covenants. So, so much. And, and there's so much that is built through Scripture on God interacting with his people through these covenants. And, and a lot of it we see right here. But essentially, what we see in a covenant is an agreement. And remember what I, in Genesis 12, I said, what we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, back four weeks ago, I guess, when we looked at that text, it was like, these verses are so foundational to the rest of Scripture. These verses are so foundational to what we, how we see God interacting with his people. Genesis 12, we saw God say, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. But then here in Genesis 15, the language changes a little bit. I'm going to read Genesis 15, 9 through 11, and then I'm going to skip down 17 through 21, and we're going to come back to those verses in the middle. I'm going to read 9 through 11 again, starting there. He said to him, God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought these all, and brought him all these, cut them in half, and, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And now skipping down to 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. I'm going to stop there. You see this, like, many would call this covenant, the covenant language. But it's a, it's a word that we don't use all that often anymore, but it's a word that many people throughout the Old Testament would have been very familiar with, and it's just not a word that we use all that much. And again, it's essentially the, the basic, I mean, I did a Google search, it said a covenant was an agreement, an agreement. There's an agreement between two, two parties. And really the only time that I've heard it used anytime recently is like when thinking of, of a marriage, an agreement between two parties where they enter into this, this covenant, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. But it's essentially this agreement, this, this covenant that says both parties are going to hold up their side of the bargain. They say, we're, we're not going to, to let you down and we're going to make this formal. We're going to make a covenant. And even the symbolism we see, from what I saw this week in, in, in reading more into this, was that the, even the symbolism was, would have been very common for the day. This splitting the animals in half and walking through 
them together, both parties, hand in hand, or side by side. And what we see is that essentially it was a symbolism that's like, if either one of us breaks this covenant, if either one of us fails, let it be to us what happened to these animals. It's just this symbolism, this rich symbolism that we see through this covenant. What we see is God taking this promise that he made to Abraham, all these I wills, and he's making, taking it one step further. So let this be a sign to you that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. But even right in the middle of God making this covenant with Abram, we see the verses that we skipped over. I'm going to go back and read verses 12 through 16. So in the midst of making this covenant, listen to what God also tells Abram. Verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. It will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." Remember, just like we have said before, like God's promise to Abram was never that everything was going to be smooth, that all this was going to be super easy and everything was going to go well as, as, as we would define well and good and easy. I mean, what does he say? He says, it's going to be difficult. These, in, in, in me fulfilling this promise, in me fulfilling this covenant, is going to mean that these people, this family that I'm going to make of you, are going to go through 400 years of affliction in a foreign land. They're going to be afflicted. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know how this plays out. That as, as Genesis ends, that Exodus begins, we see that this is exactly what happens, that the people of Israel would, be, would go into Egypt and be made slaves and would be afflicted for 400 years. But also, Abram is told here in verse 15, God says, As for you... You shall go to your father in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. In saying this, God is telling Abram that the covenant, this is beyond just you. The, the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant does not end with you. That, it, that it's going to go on past him. I mean, he's still here. He's not even going to see that end fulfillment. We're going to see that God is still promising. He's going to do all this. He's still providing. We've seen him showing Abraham this. I am going to provide. I provided victory over um, when, he, when he saved his nephew Lot. But imagine hearing this if you're Abram. Imagine hearing all this that God has just told you. This God who called you out from your family this God who made you all these incredible promises, this God who in spite of you being old and having no children, keeps promising that you're going to have children more numerous than the stars. Imagine hearing all this if you're Abram, who you, in your present circumstances, what you see is very different than what God keeps saying. But right in the middle of this, right in the middle of all of this, look at verse 6. 
and he, being Abram, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So after all that we just saw, all, everything Abram has, has seen, everything that he sees with his eyes, all that he's been walking through, everything that he's seen that has led him to, to ask these questions. But now all of a sudden, after God has showed him this, it says, Abram believed the Lord. What I think we see here is that his belief in the Lord, we, it's often pictured in faith in Jesus and faith in God. It's often seen, what's well, blind faith? I always picture it like that Indiana Jones example people always use of like stepping out when you don't see what's in front of you, but you just trust it's going to be there. Like it's often seen as blind faith. But I think what we see is that this faith that we're seeing here in Genesis 15 is not just a blind faith, but it's based solely in a God who revealed himself to Abram. It was a God who revealed himself to Abram and said, your failure doesn't define you. I'm going to define you. A God who provided for Abram even through this failure. A God who led him to a new land and gave him victory over his enemies in Genesis 14. Abram believed the Lord who had chosen him, provided for him, protected him, and, and the list goes on and on. We're going to come back to this. I want you to hold that thought. Look at verse 17 and 18 before we go back. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the, the river Euphrates. Remember the nature of the covenant. It was this agreement, this contract between two people who were both saying, Yes, I'm going to fulfill my side of the, of the job. I'm going to fulfill my side of the bargain. Each saying, I'm going to pull my weight. Each side saying, we're going to pull our weight. Let it be to us, just like these animals. If, if we don't fulfill, then let it be like, just like what happened to these animals. But when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. So after that description of covenants, what we see here is not God and Abram walking through this, making a covenant with each other. That's not what we see. Like Abram is not mentioned to have walking through, have, having walked through these animals, making this covenant with God. It's not at all what we see. Who walked through the animals? The smoking fire pot, the flaming torch. And multiple times we see in Scripture God's presence being demonstrated through fire. And we see that again here. But it wasn't Abram and God who passed through this, sealing the covenant. It was God and God alone. 
who sealed this covenant. You see, in contrast to a worldly covenant that we see, an agreement, a partnership, what we see is that God played the part of both parties in this covenant. In Genesis 15, God is taking 100% responsibility to the fulfilling this covenant. The nation he was creating, the land that he was giving to Abram, the heir he was going to provide. All of this is God taking the responsibility to see it through. You see, this covenant was not based on Abram. It wasn't based on his merit. It wasn't based on what he could accomplish. But this was God initiating a covenant that was solely based on his grace. We're going to see this all the way through. This, this covenant of grace in contrast from any sort of covenant of works, but a covenant of grace that was solely based on what God had given his people directly to Abram here. Sure, we're going to see promises of, of blessing for obedience. We're going to see that, absolutely. But the covenant itself, the fulfillment of a covenant, was not based upon their obedience but on God himself entering into this covenant and saying, I am going to see this through. I am going to make this happen. But it, again, remember, it doesn't stop with Abram. God's saying, this covenant is going to go beyond you. It's going beyond your life. Because hundreds of years would go by, hundreds of years would go by, I'm being waved at again. But again, it's, Hundreds of years would go by, and God would say, I'm not finished. Generations would go by, and God would say, I'm not finished. That slavery of his people would go by through this, and God would say, I'm not finished. God would give his people the promised land. He would remove them from the promised land because their consistent rebellion. But even then, God would say, it's not finished. The covenant of grace that we see here, this covenant is solely based on God's grace, is slowly building towards the one who would say, it is finished. You see, like all of this is pointing towards a new covenant. All of this is pointing towards Jesus. That God would send his only son into the world. Again, grace. And listen to what Jesus would say. In Luke 22, 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, here in Genesis 15, God takes the responsibility and says, this is on me. This is based on my grace. But church, the provision that we ultimately see all this is leading towards is Jesus ushering in this new covenant. Again, would be solely based on grace because if any of this was based on Abram's merit, if any of this was based on Abram's obedience, it's never going to happen. If any of this was based on what Abram could do, he would fail. 
You see, no one can meet that requirement of perfect obedience out of performance. It doesn't happen. Because what you see is the covenant of grace through obedience is through Christ. Christ fulfills that perfect obedience by what he accomplished on the cross. And just like with Abram, this isn't something that we partner with God in. Salvation is not something that we say, yes, we're partnering with you in this. No, it's Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's a covenant of grace that is apart from any work that we could do. Only Jesus. I believe that true faith that we see here in Genesis 15 True faith is understanding our inadequacies, our failures. But the true faith ultimately is coming only through experiencing God. And that's most clearly done through Jesus Christ. Because, listen, I said earlier with verses 4 and 5, that when Abram questions, because he doesn't understand, he doesn't see, re- what he sees is not lining up with what God has said. What he sees is the sin surrounding him. What he sees is his own sin, the sins of others. Just the effects of a sin-stained world. But in that moment, when, he sh- when he, God very well could have moved on and said, all right, Abram, you've done it. You just... Just, you didn't believe me. I'm going to move on. No. That's not what he tells Abram. He says, look up. And, and let me tell you again what I'm promising you. He says, look at the stars. And I think that in a similar way, that we say the new covenant through the blood of Christ, I think that even in our failure and even in our doubt, even when we say, God, I don't know what you're doing. I think even then, God tenderly, lovingly meets us in this place and says, look at the cross. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at how I have provided for you in Jesus. Because if you look at the cross of Christ, What you see is grace. As we look at our own sin, as we look at the way that others have sinned and how that's impacted us, we look at the effects of sin in this world. It is in that place, it's in that place when God meets us, when he saves us, gives us life in the midst of that. He says, look at the cross. Look what I have done. Look how I have fulfilled Look at this new covenant through the blood of Christ. And I think once we see that, everything is different. Everything. Because Abram's faith, his faith that we see here, is just an overflow of his experience with a faithful, a loving, a gracious God. True faith is not something that we muster up, that we say, hey, just have faith. You need to have more faith. Pull up those bootstraps. Have more faith. No. True faith. Abram said, believe the Lord. That faith 
comes through experiencing the goodness, the graciousness, ultimately seen in Jesus Christ. It comes from experiencing God in that way. Through Jesus, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, through him conquering sin, we can fully experience God. We're brought into his family, adopted as his children. Like, through Christ, he is our mediator. We have access to the Father. Like, in Jesus, we have the rest and comfort that comes with no longer having to earn, no longer having to rely on our own strengths, our own merits. Our experience with God, our experience of God is most clearly seen in the gift of his Son. And I think that faith, true faith, is an outworking of how we experience this. Because this God that Abraham says, he believed the Lord. It was only after he had experienced the Lord in this grace, in this tender reminder of what he was going to do, Guys, faith. Faith flows from having an ever faithful, always good, always gracious, a God who knows, a God who loves. Like, once we see, once we experience this, this immeasurable riches that we've been given in Christ, like nothing else in this world can compare. Earthly riches, earthly goods, Nothing can compare. Like back to that conversation we talked about earlier with like how we hold what we've God has graciously given us, whether it's time or energy or money. We hold that with open, we can hold that with open hands once we experience the riches of Jesus. Like we have an ever faithful, always good, loving God who promises to meet our needs. And because of the cross of Christ, the faithfulness of God ultimately displayed, like what other response is there than to just lay it all out with open hands and say, God, it's yours. Because we're freed from having to earn. We're freed from being identified by those things. We're freed to trust this God that we have so richly experienced. Just try to picture this. Imagine what this might look like for us as a church, as us as individuals within this church. Having so richly experienced God through Christ, through what Christ has done, so richly experienced this, that we take God at his word. When God gives us a promise, we take it. We say, yes, God, you promised that. What would it look like Taking God at his word and saying, yes, all that you've given to us is yours. Open hands. Giving God the blank check. Saying, it's all yours. What might it look like for us as a church to fully take God at his word in Malachi 3? A church that has experienced God in this way 
experience what God has done through Christ. We talk about grow, mature, reach. Like that mature, that having fully experienced God, so in love with Jesus because of what he's done. Experiencing God's goodness and grace. Like that is what I want. Maturing together, being made more and more like Christ as we experience God together. But then a church like that, so in love with Jesus, so open, open hands. God, all you've given us is yours. All of it is yours. That's the church that will truly reach to our neighborhoods, other states, other cities, and the nations. Listen, as we look at the cross, this new covenant shed by the, in the blood of Jesus, this new covenant based on grace. That God was faithful to Abram, and God is so faithful now. Like maybe if you've never experienced this before, like you can trust this, this God, who demonstrates his love through the giving of his own son so that you might be forgiven, freed from earning and freed from trusting in yourself. Guys, like, our faith is so much more than just what we see. It's so much more than just what we see. But it's not blind faith. It's not just faith that we, we just foolish and reckless. That's not at all what we see. Faith is in a God who demonstrates his faithfulness over and over and over again. He's given us his word to show us this over and over and over again. So even in the moments when you're like, God, I don't see my physical circumstances. What I see doesn't line up with what I see in your word. Even when we're so stuck in what we see, hear God graciously, tenderly saying, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at what I've done for you. The new covenant to the blood of Christ. Access to the Father. Freed from our sin, adopted into the family of God. Look at God saying, Look at what I have done for you.